We are back. We need to talk about the televised hearings going on in Washington, D.C., and who better to do it with than Stephen J. Harper, adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University in Chicago. Uh, We've had some great talks in the past, and I expect to have one shortly, to which I need to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen Harper. Thank you, Doug. I agree with you. This should be a fun one. Let's just open it up. I mean, I know that the hearings will not finish for a while. When they're done, we definitely need to have you come back and do a complete summary. But it's still ongoing, and a lot of interesting things are happening. Let's talk about them. Sure. Oh, they were supposed to be on, uh, on their congressional break, hiatus, for two weeks. And it was interrupted with a special bulletin, if you will, a hearing, a two-hour hearing. I think it's probably all people are going to be talking about. But let's not bury the lead. I'm going to start with the most recent one because I think it's going to, in some ways, as strange and and frightening as the earlier hearings have been. This was like something out of a really bad movie. Cassidy Hutchinson is the person who testified. As you know, she was um, aide to uh, Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff. And she was there. She was, her eyes and ears were in the room for a lot of the stuff that was going on in the White House. The committee focused her testimony on the early part of January. And I would say there, there, there's sort of a series of key points that emerge. Number one, as early as January 2nd and for all the days thereafter, uh, Trump, and it wasn't just Trump, but people close to him knew that there, there was going to be trouble on January 6th. Yes. When you, when you get to January 6th, and this is where it gets really, really interesting. And, and by I mean new trouble, I mean violence. I mean, they were real, there were real legitimate concerns about violence. On January 6th, uh, things could get ugly, things could get dangerous, that sort of thing. But the headline items are really these. As the crowd was being um, checked, they have these magnetometers that check to make sure people aren't bringing in weapons, frankly. Uh, if you're going to get particularly close to the president, you've got to go through these magnetometers uh, in the field. Well, Trump got there and didn't like the optics. They were keeping too many of his people out with the, with what, he, what they call the mags, the magnetometers. He knew they had rifles. People were telling him that they had uh, AR-15s. People were telling him that they had spears at the end of their flagpoles. And he said, let my people in. They're not here to hurt me. So file that one away, okay? They're not here to hurt me. That's important for a couple of reasons, because the second point is, when he said during the speech that he wanted everybody to follow him to the Capitol, and behind the scenes, Pat Cipollone and others were lobbying hard, look, don't let him go to the Capitol the quotation from uh, the witness today, Hutchinson, was, we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable. But nevertheless, Trump really, really wanted to go. He wanted to go so badly. This is the part where you just go to the bad movie stuff. He thought even getting into the, the presidential limo, which they call the beast, after his speech was over, he thought that's where he was going. He thought he was going to the U.S. Capitol. He said that, I'm going to follow you there. I'm going to be there with you. He thought he was going to be there with them. Well, so do the rioters. If I can just interrupt for a second, I know that there's been a tremendous amount of anger from the rioters, who in many cases have been convicted of crimes, for saying, well, he was supposed to come and join us. That's right. That's right. Some of Trump's critics are saying, now we know incorrectly, oh, he, that's just typical Trump cowardice. No, he wanted to go. He got into the, into the beast, they call it, the presidential uh, vehicle in the motorcade. The guy in charge of his Secret Service detail said, we can't go to the Capitol. It hasn't been secured. It's not a secure area. We gotta go. We're going back to the West Wing. At which point, Trump tried physically to grab the steering wheel of the car. Oh, my God. When the Secret Service agent grabbed Trump's arm, Trump then tried to strangle, I'm not kidding you, strangle 
the Secret Service agent who had grabbed his arm, put his arms around his neck. I've missed this up till this point. I'm hearing this the first time, and my jaw's on the floor. You're not alone. During the break, when they took a 10-minute recess during the hearing, the commentators were an analyst. They weren't speechless. They were like, this is the most stunning thing that I have ever heard <laughs> in presidential history. And, you know, after that, of course, it seems anticlimactic when the witness also testified that after Bill Barr had gone public with AP in early December saying he doesn't think there's a, uh, sufficient fraud in the election to change the outcome, Trump got so angry that he throw, threw his lunch against the wall of the, the White House dining room, and Cassie Hutchinson happened to walk in, and, and there was ketchup on the wall and broken plates on the floor, and so she helped try to clean up the wall. But the notion, the notion that the president of the United States, okay, this is guy, this guy is armed with a nuclear arsenal, is, is in his presidential limousine trying to grab the steering wheel, trying to strangle the Secret Service agents whose only job, only job, is to, is to take a bullet for the guy because they're telling him, you can't go there, it's not safe. It makes John Dean look like a uh, walk in the park. Well, had, had Trump arrived at, on Capitol Hill as a riot was going on and the attempt was to overthrow the government and to, you know, chant, hang Mike Pence, etc., had he been there to rally the troops, one imagines that they may have, uh, they may have succeeded that day. And, they, and those AR-15s you mentioned, which have sort of been put under a wrap, might have been brought on along with the rifles, etc., you, you wonder, right? The, the import of it, of course, is that it puts Trump right at the center of the most serious charge that people have sort of shied away from playing up too heavily because they're worried about, you know, proving it and proving the conspiracy and proving his role in organizing the rebellion and all that sort of stuff. But we're talking, we're talking seditious conspiracy. He was always on the hook for obstructing official duties of Congress and defrauding the United States and, and, and in state, various states like Georgia, he's on the hook for interfering with an election official. But this, this is a whole new universe of problems, and it's not just a universe of problems, not just for him, but for all of these other people who were involved in it, who knew about it, who, frankly, in some cases, even tried to stop him. All I could think as I was listening to this was, was number one, how horrifying what a scene. I mean, just imagine the scene um, in, that, in that presidential vehicle. And, and second, what if this had come out earlier? What if this had come out before his impeachment? You can apply that to a whole list of witnesses who you say, well, that's nice, but why did you wait? Now, I don't fault somebody like Cassidy Hutchinson at all. She was a college senior in 2018. She's young. She doesn't know. You know, she, she's still sufficiently concerned about her future, that she's probably trying to figure out where her future lies. But I, and I give her great credit, great credit. She certainly has more, shown more courage than her boss, Mark Meadows, who frankly comes off like he's just a, a, a complete weakling in all of this stuff. When she goes in to ask him serious questions about, well, have you seen what's happening on TV, you know, in the middle of the riot, you know, he's still staring at his cell phone. He doesn't even look up. It's just remarkable. A week ago in this program, we were taking a look back 50 years at Watergate and a president who was, in fact, well, the only president ever to resign because of the issues of obstruction of justice. When a tape came out proving that he had, he had asked to defer an investigation, that was uh, the last straw, and he was, he was out. And you compare that to what's going on right now, it's just, it's just... Well, let me pick up on that thought. The very last thing that uh, Representative Liz Cheney said in the most recent hearing 
was alluding to the fact that something that has been very troubling to the committee, witnesses with whom they have been speaking uh, and are trying to speak have said, they've told the committee, look, we're getting messages and we're here reading phone calls from Trump's people without naming the people uh, who are getting the calls. She basically laid out and described what the nature of the calls or the messages were. And, and they read like, like a mob. Vito Corleone. Absolutely. Literally, they say things like, you know, well, we know, you know, I'm in contact with uh, Mr. Trump. Make no mistake, I still have a lot of influence with him. We know you're part of Trump world. And, you know, we know you'll, you'll, you'll protect us as long as you deserve protection. And all you can think of is, holy crap, you know, what kind of pressure must these people be feeling? It's like an organized crime ring, and, and it's sort of like, you know, nice little democracy you have there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, essentially what he's saying to the entire country. In the wake of, of January 6th, there was a lot of talk at the time about how the 25th Amendment uh, may need to be invoked to curtail the powers of this guy. And I guess we just learned today that there was serious talk among cabinet members of doing exactly that. That's right. And there have been previous reports of that that have been sort of equivocal, I would say. This testimony seems pretty persuasive that it was absolutely underway, which, of course, makes Pence a critical player because Pence made it clear to Congress after January 6th that the 25th Amendment was not going to be anything that he considered. The interesting thing about Pence is that, and this goes back to January 6th, while the riot was happening and people were saying, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, he was telling people in the White House, he actually went to Meadows and said, have you heard what they're saying about the Pence? And he said, yeah, but you heard what the president said, thinks Pence deserves it. And Pence, something that came out uh, not long ago, and I don't know how, to what degree this has been firmed up. The riders were 40 feet away from Pence at one point. I remember on the day the footage showing how close yep. they'd gotten to him. And at one point, the Secret Service was interested in whisking him away to safety. And he, out of a suspicion that bad things might happen if he got into the car, as I understand it, refused to go. Well, he did refuse to go, although what he said was the reason he refused uh, was because he didn't want the world to see the image of a vice president who was supposed to be presiding over the peaceful transition of power fleeing the Capitol. I don't know which who you want to credit on that. It's hard to say, but there are two different versions of that one. And, and only Pence, who is, is conspicuously absent from these hearings, at least personally, although his name is it pervades all of this, his absence is sort of remarkable, frankly. Let's talk about that. The Week magazine has Pence on the cover talking about he might be a hero, and there's all these talk, maybe, is he the hero of January 6th? It's like, well, he could come right now and clarify a lot of matters like the ones we're talking about. He's not doing so. He's making comments like, well, these hearings are kind of uh, distracting voters from the Democrats' failed agenda. I mean, obviously, he'd like to run in 2024, and he'd like to have it both ways. Yeah. Well, when they talk about people like Bill Barr and Mike Pence being heroes, all I can think is that the bar for heroism in the Trump administration <laughs> is distressingly low. And I don't have to tell you the story, but Barr was one of, the, one of Trump's enablers in chief. He started bad-mouthing the, the potential integrity of the election or the, the concerns about mail-in ballots without any evidence at all months before the election. He was giving fuel to to Trump's uh, nonsense about mail-in ballots. Well, he's, he single-handedly derailed the Mueller report. Right, right. I mean, I mean, there was a lot of evidence in there of criminality that could have been played up to good purpose, and he more or less said, oh, no, here's a summary, you got nothing. 
he essentially deep-sixed it because he was able to give a, a spin on it that allowed Trump to run with a no-collusion, no-obstruction, total exoneration ball for the next couple of months. And then when the, by the time the Mueller report came out and people could see the truth, which a, even a federal judge looked at and said, well, Barr was clearly being deceptive in pursuing some agenda that had nothing to do with the truth in spinning the report as he did. And yet that still didn't blow up. And you know why? Because it took, a, it took a year. What Trump has learned is how to game the system. And the way to game the system is you, you litigate, you litigate, you litigate, you litigate. You delay, you delay, you delay, you delay. And it's worked. The Judiciary Committee subpoenaed Don McGahn. It took two years for that subpoena enforcement to make its way up through the courts. And finally, in May of, of 2021, I think it was, they came to a deal. Nobody paid any attention to it. Um, again, appeared to testify privately, and you know, end of story. So, you know, you take it out of the public eye, and Trump. So the answer is, you repeat it, you repeat it, you repeat it, you repeat it. The lie that is, and then along the way, if anyone tries to get at the truth, just keep delaying it, just rope it open. <laughs> it's a good description. Yes. Well, the legal system is just not equipped. As a lawyer, it distresses me to no end, but it doesn't surprise me. The legal system really depends on the good faith of the people who are most responsible for making sure it works. And, and th- those are, frankly, lawyers. Lawyers can be great protectors of democracy and the Constitution, or they can enable its collapse. And unfortunately, Trump has been able to find and surround himself with lawyers and people who get lawyers who are content to just, you know, take the money and run and say whatever I need to say and democracy be damned, even though they take an oath. Every lawyer takes an oath to uphold the Constitution. Fulfilling it is a different proposition for too many of them. Well, to mention Nixon again, he once said, you know, the public, it takes about two years to get past a scandal. Yeah. Scandal breaks, a couple years, public's pretty much forgotten about it. And I guess that's, you know, that there's Trump in a nutshell uh, as well. But uh, the, the last hearing, they've trotted out this elderly, very respected, arch-conservative Republican judge lawyer that just said, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, what this means for the, for the, for the nation. Yeah. Well, he was pretty stark. He said that Trump continues to this day to be a clear and present danger to democracy. Former Judge uh, J. Michael Luddig, who is an extraordinary force in the conservative world, because he didn't come off like a celebrity, well, in the, in the live hearings, commentators panned him and the public ignored him and all that sort of stuff. And, and that's really a shame because what he had to say, if you get past the performance art and the critics of his performance art, what he had to say was right on point. And it's coming from somebody who was a George H.W. Bush appointee to the Court of Appeals and twice on the list of George W. Bush's shortlist for the U.S. Supreme Court. He is a serious, serious guy in, in the conservative world. And so it was, his testimony was really, really remarkable. But as you say, will it have meant anything? Uh, I don't know. Well, what surprises me about this, and I've expressed this in we've talked in the past is is my lack of patience of with the legal proceedings and how you know is Merrick Garland going to do something or not are they going to are they going to impanel grand juries are there going to be indictments yada yada and when they start talking about doing a congressional uh, investigation i just thought that this is not what we need but i've i've sort of flipped on that after hearing from Jeff Morley last week that this really might be what the country needs to be hammered again and again and to see the detail we're seeing like today that has been swept under the rug so that when these indictments can go forward, the public is now primed to, to like realize 
what we're really dealing with. Yes, um, we're dealing with a, with a different public and we're dealing with a different media. But I can remember the summer of 1973, sitting through and watching 10-hour marathon sessions, day after day, week after week, and they worked. There were witnesses, some were more powerful than others, some were, were more interesting than others. And think about it the other way, too. When the Republicans had the opportunity, uh, how many times uh, over the course of a, of a day or a week or a month did you hear the word Benghazi? Yes. And Hillary Clinton, right? Yeah. You would think at some point people would roll their eyes and go, oh, boy, here we go again, Benghazi. Thing. But you know what? That garbage works. That junk works. And, and, you know, it shouldn't even surprise us at this point because, as we all know, the key to the success of the big lie is, number one, make it really big, and number two, say it over and over again. Well, I happen to think that also works with the truth. And so if you want to counter Trump's big lie, which really thrives on repetition and the, and the spotlight, then keep repeating and keep spotlighting the truth. And I, I hope, frankly, that the committee continues to hold hearings right up until the moment that Merrick Garland indicts Trump and his inner circle. I hope they just keep going on it. Well, there's been a great deal of doubt that Merrick Garland's doing anything, but, well, what would you say at this point? Well, here, here's what I would say. Number one, to build the case that requires the prosecution of a former president of the United States has to be airtight. You've got to have all of your I's dotted and your T's crossed, and you've got to be really confident that you have it, because it'll, it'll go down as a tragic mistake if Trump ultimately winds up in jail for him, was when Kevin McCarthy decided to boycott this committee with his any of his people and let uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on and then get, essentially gave the Democrats the ability to run this, not like any other committee where, where you would have constant interruptions from Jim Jordan repeating the falsehoods, you know, raising the false issues. None of that is happening. And, and one of the reasons that it, the presentations, I believe, have been so powerful, and I think they have been, is because there haven't been those kinds of interruptions. As far as what Garland's doing, I think the result of that, the role of the committee's work, is beginning to make an impression that is sufficiently powerful. I read a series of polls just this morning that indicated that there's already been somewhere in the neighborhood of a, between a 5 and a 7% shift on Democrat versus Republican approval ratings in favor of the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Now, inflation's no better. Um, you know, the Ukraine war is still a mess. You know, gasoline prices are still going up. So you got to believe that what's happening in this committee is finally getting the attention of some people. Now, you got to recognize, of course, that there's a core, a core followers uh, in the cult, um, although now I really think organized crime is a better analogy than cult at this point, <laughs> the Trump cult, that you're never going to move. You know, the day Nixon left office, his approval rating was still somewhere like 27 or 29 percent. Yeah. So you're, you're always going to have that hard core that's going to hang on. Unfortunately, a number of them are, are, are now on the Supreme Court, but that's a separate subject. <laughs> Let's talk about that in a minute. But I just saw a poll that showed that in terms of whether feeling that Trump should be prosecuted, the numbers were on the order of 90 percent of Democrats uh, in the teens, somewhere in the teens on Republicans, very low. But, but independence was like 61 percent, something like that. Those are the ones you want. And those are the ones you want, because the only people left who will, call, who will self-identify as independents in a poll like that are going to be the cult loyalists. No one else who is really a Republican in terms of ideology or anything else can seriously call themselves a Republican and support Trump, in my view. I don't know if it's moving the needle, 
but it's shaking the table on which the needle is on. <laughs> I think it's shaking it in the right direction. We're blowing through time here like uh, like I can't believe, but we've got a few minutes left, and I think during that time we should mention what has finally happened. The the guillotine has finally dropped on Roe v. Wade last week, and, and now it, it it's no longer the law of the land. And, and we let's talk a bit about that. No surprise, I guess, and that's unfortunate given the, the three appoint, Trump appointees to the court. I think everyone has predicted that it would happen uh, after once Ruth Ginsburg died. And even before that, I think they thought Kavanaugh's appointment would probably be sufficient to kill it, although Roberts now protests that he would not have completely uh, abandoned Roe v. Wade. Now, can you explain that there's a vote that they keep saying, well, he didn't vote completely to dismantle it, but it seems to me if you uphold those state laws that are dismantling it, you've already dismantled it. Here's the thing. The law in the, in the Dobbs case, which is the one we're talking about, involved only Mississippi, and it had a 15-week cutoff, basically. But then after Barrett got appointed to the Supreme Court, the Mississippi expanded its request and said, look, don't stop me at 15 weeks. Just throw Roe out altogether. But, the, but technically speaking, the only thing that was before the court, and this is Robert's nuance or claim nuance, was whether or not a statute that banned abortion after 15 weeks should be constitutional or not. And 93% of abortions occur in the first trimester before the 15th week. He's trying to split the hairs on that issue by saying, look, Roe is still in effect, but I agree with the result in this case, which upholds the Mississippi state law. So that's called a concurrence. But frankly, I think at the end of the day, it isn't going to make any difference because he's lost control of the court. He's no longer relevant. There's a core of five. That yeah, that's right. Against. He was thought of as the fifth, the swing vote, the, the moderate, the guy that was standing on, between the liberal and conservative wings. But now he's got five guys to the right of him. That's right. And he was an incrementalist. Um, you know, he wanted to proceed slowly. He really was concerned about his legacy in terms of the integrity of the institution. But instead, you got a guy like Alito who, and this, I wish I were kidding about this, he, be, he began his discussion of what's called constitutional originalism, which seeks to determine the intent of the framers of the Constitution, or in this case, the 14th Amendment, which guarantees due process. But what he started with was, I'm not kidding you, the Middle Ages. He started with a treatise from a guy named de Bracton, who in the 13th century wrote that if, if you killed a woman who had a viable fetus, you had committed homicide. So from that point forward, according to, to, to Alito, who actually got his history wrong, because what he, what he concluded was, therefore, if you kill any fetus at any stage of the pregnancy, You've killed, you've killed somebody uh, in, in ancient time. So that must still be true. And oh, by the way, so therefore there's no right for a woman to have an abortion now because there wasn't in the Middle Ages, which is number one nonsense because even the misogynists that he cited acknowledged that if you're looking at a, at a pre-viability situation before you can detect life, that's a different question. If you're in the first trimester, it should be a different question. Even in the Middle Ages, it was a different question. I'm not a lawyer, but I did take a good hard look at, at Roe v. Wade when I did a presentation back when medical residency about what it meant. And what I see these guys quoting is not what's in the law. I mean, like, it's like, did they read the thing? The answer is they didn't, because if you go back and, and actually read more closely, you'll also see that this guy, Bracton, the 13th century misogynist whom Alito began his historical discussion with, also said that women are inferior beings. If you put the, these words in the context of their times, then, then it makes no sense at all to say these are the people who should now be determining what 
rights people have now, particularly when you take into account, and this is the real flaw in, in Alito's originalism as it relates to individual rights, how can you decide whether or not people who didn't have any rights in those earlier times, women, slaves, I mean, you just name it, it's a long list, right? How can you determine whether they have rights now if you're going to rely on whether or not they had them in the Dark Ages? Because the answer is always going to be no. <laughs> right, right. Rich white men were writing the rules. So it, it, you're, if you're looking for the rights of people who were not rich white men in those rules, you're not going to find them. And that was the, one of the points that the dissent made in the, in the Dodds case. So the whole thing is, is nuts. And, and one final point on this whole notion of originalism. You know, for 200 years, people didn't think as a matter of constitutional interpretation that what the framers thought made any difference at all. Originalism sprang out of a reaction in the 60s to Chief Justice Earl Warren, who, by the way, was a, an appointee of a Republican president, Eisenhower, who had expanded individual rights, particularly in the criminal sphere. So what emerged as a, as a countering force to that was this notion of, well, maybe we ought to constrain ourselves by this concept of thinking about what the framers had in mind when they wrote the Constitution. And it got jet fuel when Richard Nixon, who keeps re returning in all these sagas, <laughs> appointed William Rehnquist as the Chief Justice of the United States. So originalism got a critical ally, and then starting in the 70s and then into the 80s, it grew up in the law school campuses in the Federalist Society, and as you say, Scalia really became the most vocal bullhorn uh, for the concept. But, but the notion is nuts. You know, when I was in law school in the 70s, it was treated as a joke. I hope later in this month we'll bring back Michael Trachman to talk about, well, not, not just Roe v. Wade, but, but Citizens United. I welcome you to, to, to pile on after we've had that Citizens United discussion, because it seems that in that case, they're against activism and creating new rights, but that's only for liberals. If conservatives want to give corporations free speech rights, well, that's different. Or as states' rights is another theme that runs through this, right? Yes. Or you won't remember necessarily personally, but you may have read about... The Civil War, you know, that, that started with the South claiming that having to follow federal rules, laws relating to slavery was an interference with their states' rights. Now it's the, it's the mantra that Republicans are using to curtail voting for people who are most likely not going to vote Republican. Well, uh, there's a meme floating around about uh, Clarence Thomas, a man I hope you'll come back and talk more about in the future. But there's a mixed racial marriage with he and his wife, Jenny, and that was something that was a right that was granted that had not been there previously. The meme more or less says, well, Clar Clarence Thomas would like to go back and make his own marriage invalid. Well, yeah, you know, he wrote a concurring opinion in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe that listed right to privacy, right to contraception, cases that established these rights, uh, gay marriage, as, the, as cases that should all be revisited because there's no, there, there's supposedly substantive due process, which he thinks is a canard. There's no such thing. The court should take a close look at all of them and essentially blow them away. In the case you cite for interracial marriage, should have been on that list, but for some reason wasn't. <laughs> I leave you with this on Thomas. Two years after his appointment in 1991, or maybe it was a year after his appointment in 1991, he had a meeting with two of his former clerks and said, I'm going to be around until the year 2034. Uh, that's, when, that's how long my term is going to be. That would give him a term of... 43 years. One of his clerks asked, this was in 1992, why 2034? To which Thomas replied after, you know, because he'd gone through a, a grueling confirmation proceeding that still scars him to this day, I believe. 
And he said, 2034 is because the liberals made me miserable for 43 years, and now I'm going to make them miserable for the next 43 years. That's the spirit. <laughs> and uh, in an earlier interview, Ginny Thomas had essentially said the same thing. So I have a hunch that he may have gotten that, that inspiration from her. But Ginny Thomas could be the subject of an entire separate program because she's in the thick of the January 6th controversy. And I hope she will be before we're all said and done here. I, we're out of time, but I want to insert one more thing because it's such a great story we talked about before that you, uh, you actually attended law school with John Roberts, and I'd like you to tell that little bit. I did. I did. I didn't know John in law school. From what I've learned about him since, I'm not sure I would have liked him. But I can tell you that I was sort of surprised when I saw we, we had we shared a, a constitutional law professor who was a, who was eminent in his field, uh, Lawrence Tribe yeah. at Harvard. Professor Tribe, well, this must have been 15 years ago at least, was on what was then the Colbert Report, Stephen Colbert, before he was on the, the Tonight Show host. And Colbert asked at that point, sorry, Roberts was already involved in rulings that seemed to indicate pretty clearly what direction he was headed, and it wasn't a, wasn't a great one for liberal democracy. And Colbert turned it to, to Professor Tribe and said, Now, Professor Tribe, I understand that John Roberts took constitutional law. He was in your class. And Tribe responded, You're right, he did, but I don't think he got much out of the course. <laughs> We'll have to end it there. Stephen J. Harper, thank you again for speaking with us, and please do come back next month as this wraps up, and we've got a lot more to talk about. Will do. Thanks. Have a good one, Doug. All righty. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. We'll see you again next week.